these. We're going to get some tramp stamps. We're going to get some bad tribal <laughs> tattoos. I mean, <laughs> Welcome to Hey, Did You Ever See That Movie? I'm your host, Des. And as always, I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Lynn. Halloween until mañana. <laughs> and back by popular demand, the podcaster with a degree in terror, Tony. Hey, how's it going? So today we will be reviewing The Crow, a 1984 action fantasy movie directed by Alex Proyas, written by James O'Barr, David Show, and John Shirley, starring the late, great Brandon Lee as The Crow. As always, this podcast will be full of spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie, watch it first, then come back and listen to the podcast. But before we get started, let's run the trailer. People once believed that when someone dies, a crow carries their soul to the land of the dead. But sometimes, just sometimes, the crow can bring that soul back the wrong thing's right. You're all going to die. Is that gasoline I spent? So, Delyn, do you want to give us a synopsis before we break into it? Absolutely. All right, shoot. The night before his wedding, musician Eric Draven and his fiance are brutally murdered by members of a violent inner city gang. On the anniversary of their death, Eric rises from the grave and assumes the gothic mantle of the crow, a supernatural avenger. Tracking down the thugs responsible for the crimes and mercilessly murdering them, Eric eventually confronts the head gangster Top Dollar to complete his macabre mission. Hey, so before we get started, let's just, uh, I got a couple of things I want to say about that I think are kind of interesting. And then we'll uh, discuss the first time we each saw this movie. I know you guys have a, a kind of a fun story on that. So um, first of all, I just wanted to say uh, Miramax had originally been pressing to have Michael Jackson do this as a musical. They wanted him as uh, the crow. And of course, the director said, no way. What do you guys think uh, Michael Jackson would have brought to this? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> okay. I think we're all in agreement there. And uh, the other fun fact was there actually are no crows in this movie. Uh, yeah, no crows in this movie at all. They're all ravens, which I thought was uh, interesting. That is interesting. I didn't know that. And um, his name is Eric the Raven, maybe? <laughs> Eric, Eric the, Raven. the Raven? I don't know. All right. So I think I've stepped on this enough. Go ahead, Dylan. <laughs> 
Okay, so I'm just going to put this out there right away. This movie came out at a point in my life when I identified with it very heavily. Uh, I'm very sentimental about it. And um, I'm going to try to view the movie a little bit more critically for the sake of the review. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a favorite. So um, I'm just going to put that out there as a disclaimer. I, I, I got to be right there with Dylan. Um, came out in 94. I've been a fan of the comics since easily 92, um, religiously. Once they announced it was a movie, followed everything I could find, gobbled it all up. Um, devastated me when when the, you know, the accident happened. But just thinking it was never going to see the light of day because this, if the movie was supposed to see the light of day, this was just it. I was religious with this movie. And, yeah. um, you know, got to meet the James Obar, met him, and had an amazing hour-long conversation about the influences and the artistic choices, and then obviously, um, huge, huge influence on me in the early '90s. Not that I was an emo goth kid, but man, it, he made it cool to be. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm sure we'll touch more on it later, but yeah, it's, it's going to be. I, I, I honestly didn't watch the movie before we did this, I, I feel like I know it so much to not sound completely over the top dramatic, but it has that much of an effect on me that it really brings me back to a certain time in my life that I was a very different person. A lot of different people were in my life and it's, it's very, it, it's a cornerstone movie in my, my cinematic history, we'll say. Absolutely. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, um, Tony and I saw this in a early screening and James Obar was there. Because I think that was the same day that you met him at the comic book store, wasn't it? Yeah, comic book, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that was, that's how far back we go, so. <laughs> okay. And the first time I saw this was yesterday on my couch. I can't, <laughs> I, I literally can't believe that I never saw this before. When I put it on, I said, I've never seen this. I've never even seen one scene from this movie, and it blew my mind that I hadn't. Um so, so much has been influenced by at least seen so much since then yeah i mean I, I and being a guy that you know was kind of into all that stuff it was just really blew my mind that i had to see it so i i watched it through once and i'm not gonna lie i was afraid to do this podcast with you guys because <laughs> i just i didn't like it i'm gonna be honest with you but i I felt like I had to be missing something. So I went back and I watched it again today. Um, tried to just watch it again with a fresh point of view and, and just really try to understand it. And I saw it completely differently, which is something that doesn't often happen when I watch the same movie two days in a row. We'll get into why um, I changed my opinion on it uh, on the second watch. So that was my experience with it. Yes, and I also uh, reread the comic, which I literally have not done since probably I saw the movie the first time. And I forgot how different the movie and the comic kind of are. And um, uh, some of the changes were for the better. Some of the changes I felt like maybe weren't so great, but um, it was nice to have that in the back of my head as I was re-watching the movie and refreshing my memory of it. So that was also interesting. And I've got a couple of points here and there that I can point out that I thought were a little different. So our movie opens with a voiceover. A little girl is telling us that in some cultures, when someone dies, a crow carries their soul to the afterlife. But sometimes when there's a great injustice, the crow can bring the soul back to right the wrong. The camera's panning across the city. It's burning. And you're coming up onto the scene of a crime. 
Officer Albrecht, played by Ernie Hudson, is looking out a high window and he's looking at the body of a dead man laying on the ground beneath. The victim is Eric Draven, played by Brandon Lee. His girlfriend, Shelley Webster, who is played by Sophia Shinnis, is also the victim of a brutal attack and rape, and she's struggling to survive still. She's taken to the hospital, and Sarah, a little girl, played by Rochelle Davis, she is also the voiceover little girl. Uh, she was friends with Eric and Shelley. She arrives on her skateboard just in time to see Sarah being taken away, and Albrecht comforts her, even though it's pretty awkward. So this is our opening scene, and uh, what do you guys think? What did, how did it set it up for you? Go ahead, Tony. Um, it was a good intro. I mean, you get the the, the following the, the the slow pan shot of the entire burning city. You, it sets the atmosphere completely, mm-hmm. completely dark, completely doom like, and obviously crime scenes are never happy. So it, it again sets the tone. And nice to see a face right off the bat, Ernie Hudson playing Officer Albright, which is nice. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think it set the tone for the for the film pretty pretty well right um so this is the problem that i had with a lot of this movie was the way it looked the city to me felt like a miniature it didn't and and it's supposed to be detroit which is funny this is the third week in a row i've been in detroit with robocop and beverly hills cop the past two weeks (laughs) it's the detroit Um, trilogy (laughs) this city didn't look like detroit and i think it would have served the movie better if they had just called it like you know uh you know whatever given it some name that made it just some fantasy city that is it was Detroit in the comic book? I don't know. I didn't recall seeing Detroit in the comic book. I, I it was very yeah, I don't I don't believe it it actually gave you a location no. Yeah, so that kind of like uh, that was kind of uh awkward to me because it didn't look like Detroit. There was nothing that said Detroit. And also the way the city looked on that opening shot as it sweeped in. Yeah, I liked it. I mean, it kind of gave me a little of that Blade Runner feel. It was cool, but like, you know, the smoke looked like it was like drawn in. The fire looked like it was drawn in. The buildings looked like they were miniatures. And on the first watch, it was a problem for me. Like I said, on the second watch, I tried to look at it more like a comic book and more like a 90s rock video. And it started making me kind yeah, of... Yeah, the, um, the director is a rock video director, so Alex Prius did that, so... Yeah, and I started getting a little nostalgic for the time, and I think I appreciated it more on the second watch. So yeah, it, set, it started setting up a cool comic book movie for me, but the, uh, the cinematography was pretty weak in this movie. Um, yeah, and they also had a very limited budget. It is Miramax, you know, um, which I'm not trying to say bad things about Miramax, but they do tend to operate on a little bit of a tighter budget. And quite frankly, I think they probably blew most of their budget on the soundtrack, which still slaps to this day. You know, it's oh, like yeah. The Crow, yeah, Nine Inch Nails, like it's Stone Temple Pilots. It's so good. <laughs> I, I, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta chime in on the on the totally low budget. You're 100 percent right with with Miramax showing up. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, after Brandon's death, they shelved it. They were planning on just scrapping it. Yep. So a lot of what was left went towards, it was, I think, 94, 93, actually, when it was being made. There was no really good CG. They had to CG his face in. They had to CG his face on top of bodies. And there are times during the movie you'll actually see a little shimmer of, you know, where you can tell it is. Mm-hmm. But a lot, I guess, because I was just so happy to have the movie, I forgave a lot of the low budget. Again, being a movie geek, Miramax is known for that. Yeah. Because I knew it was based on a comic, I forgave the comic. 
influence yes. looks and angles and lighting. That's and, and I, Des, I completely agree. If you're looking at this from a cinematic point of view, the the lighting is just we're lighting people a little above, a little below, and we're lucky if we get an off off shadow. So yeah, it's they were just trying to get through the movie, I believe. Yeah, that's my, that's my two cents. Well, I had a lot more fun with it on the second viewing. Like I said, as soon as I stopped trying to watch it like a big budget blockbuster and I started looking at it like more of a uh, an artistic movie. Or a cult um, classic. A cult classic, you know, a comic book movie, uh, you know, uh, a Billy Idol video, a rock video. I started enjoying it a lot more. So it's a year later and Eric and Shelly are buried and they're in the graveyard behind an abandoned church in the neighborhood. Sarah is there paying her respects and a crow lands on Eric's headstone. He squawks at her and she kind of tells him, beat it. <laughs> and she leaves, but the crow stays and he begins to peck at the headstone. Sarah is on her way on her skateboard. She meets up with Albrecht at a hot dog stand um, and Sarah joins him. It's apparent they've formed kind of a friendship after what ha happened to Eric and Shelley. You know, uh, I think she was probably looking for a stable force in her life. And, you know, as we find out later in the movie, her mother is not that. So she's kind of latched on to this cop and he's kind of just taken her under his wing a little bit. He, you know, buys her a hot dog, buys her dinner. And um, it's interesting because Sarah's such a small, small role in the comic, like, barely like you'd blink and miss her in the comic book but she becomes basically almost like the narrator in this film which yeah. i thought was interesting yeah um she is the narrator in this film and normally i don't like kids in films they just don't work for me especially in a movie like this and you know i i could have done without the the kid in the story here but it was fine it was fine i'll actually agree with that i think that it her narrating it didn't, I understand why they did because she's the voice of a lot of life. Mm -hmm. Whereas Eric is the voice of death. Had narrate this movie would confuse, honestly, the narration. He's back, but he shouldn't be the voice of it. It should be someone who's alive telling the story of what's going on. But yeah, it, it wasn't, in the comic, it wasn't her story to tell. And I actually feel like she's almost, her scenes are in the way of what I feel is the main part of the story, which is really what, what I want to see from <laughs> yeah, she's she's a passenger pretty much to the plot. You know, she's things are happening around her and she's witnessing, you know, and she's just narrating what she's witnessing. She's you know, to to a certain degree she is involved, but she's not a huge like if you removed her from the movie, you could probably switch around a couple scenes and it would work just fine. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's funny because the first time I watched this, you know, my real big problem with it was the first time I meet the crow in this, I'm really, uh, I'm like, oh, it's great. This is kind of like where Heath Ledger was getting his Joker from. It, it's played really dark. And then, you know, we kept slipping in and out of the role between Eric Draven and the crow. And I was like, oh, I don't like this. I wish he played it darker. I wish he stayed the crow. That was the first time. The second time all the way. And I think this movie has such a loose script and such a loose plot that it's really, um, you know, the, the viewer can really kind of make up his own ideas about some of the movie. And the second time around, I started to feel like this movie was about Eric Draven. And Eric Draven really um, was the crow. The crow wasn't Eric Draven. This wasn't Eric Draven turning into the crow and then the crow being this, like, super character. I felt like on my second watching, it was Eric Draven. I mean, this was Eric Draven back from the dead. 
And he wasn't a vicious man. He was a kind-hearted man. And I don't feel he was comfortable executing these people. I think it went against who he really was. And once I started looking at the character like that, I saw a lot of heart. And I started getting the character more. And I really warmed up to Brandon Lee's um, performance. And the second time around, I mean, I loved it. I thought it was freaking great. And the first time, I did not like it. Interesting. It's, I'm glad that you watched it again and gave it another chance. Because when you first came down and said to me, I, I don't like this. I was like, no, you have to like it. And we like got into an argument about it. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. That's not what it's about. Like I like spazzed out because I was like, no, 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 go back and watch it again. Yeah. So I felt I felt like when he was being ruthless and dark, it was him like uh not being true to himself and, and i feel like he felt uncomfortable in those scenes in the movie and then when he was having these moments like in the apartment with the cop having the drink he was being eric draven himself and that's how he felt comfortable so once i started looking at it from that angle i really appreciated the character of the girl more right because it was a little bit yeah. more multifaceted too not just this avenging you know superhero oh, yeah. guy you know oh. he actually had like parts of him that weren't that yeah there were layers to the character that i didn't see the first time that i really appreciated the second time so yeah excellent that's definitely a, a huge difference i feel from the comic yes you know the comic has you know, two three pages of oh this is lovey and the rest he's just this violent vengeful like vicious yes like the, the, the movie has like a fraction of the violence that the comic does the comic is just over the top. He, he enjoys what he's doing for the vengeance. This one, I agree 100%. I'm glad that you picked up on it. That he, it's not him. It's he's not vengeance. He's just someone who feels he needs to do the right thing now. Yes, and and uh, it's funny too because I've noticed that you know as the movie goes on, that makeup gets lighter and lighter, and by the end, you know, not to jump ahead, but by the end, he's literally just he's made all his kills. He's no longer needs the crow persona, and he's just completely back to being Eric Draven, and there's no makeup on his face. Uh, you took that from me. That was my point. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that was, that was Rude. Right as it's going, right, he becomes more of himself, and he can finally let that go. And it's it's the scene when that's when she comes to him at the end, yeah. touches his head, and he and they go. But we'll get to that. I'm so glad I watched this a second time and didn't just go on my first review because, man, I, I think I would have regretted it down the line. Yeah, if you ever watched it again down the line, you might have been like, ooh, I missed a bunch, you know? I missed everything. <laughs> <laughs> so now we have a shot of a group of miscreants, and they're in an old arcade. They're busting it up. I mean, honestly, these arcade games look like they're from about you know, half a century ago anyways, so I don't think anyone really cares, but they set a bomb to explode and they take off. Now these scenes in the arcade are being interspliced with scenes of the graveyard. Uh, the earth is starting to buckle and give way in front of Eric Draven's headstone. And he emerges, uh, he's stumbling, he's disoriented. Uh, he doesn't really know where he is and he's stumbling through the city and he finds himself back in his old apartment. He begins to flashback to the attack on him and Shelly. And this is the first time that we see that he's got the ability to heal. He cuts his hands and he looks at his palms and they heal almost immediately. So this gives us our first indication that besides just being back from the dead, which is already kind of cool, he's also got abilities. 
Yeah, it's too bad the movie makers don't because the effects they use were like, <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> Miramax. <laughs> it's bad. It's bad for a movie. But if there was any other sledgehammer of Christ-like, <laughs> Christ-like adoration right there, it's like, let's see, we have a long-haired man, used to be people. Something bad happens to him. His hands have holes in them. Now they're healing. Really? It's like, yeah. It's like they set that. That was the sledgehammer of plot right there. Yeah. We're going to get that a few times in the movie, too. A few of oh, these long hair guys spread out in the cross. Like, with, yeah, it, it's, yeah. it's heavy handed. <laughs> <laughs> so here we go. Uh, we now are going to um, the pit, which is a gross bar. Uh, we meet Tintin, played by Lawrence Mason, Skank, played by Angel David, Fun Boy, played by Michael Massey, and T-Bird, played by David Patrick Kelly. They're sitting around, they're drinking, they're doing shots by pulling, putting bullets on their tongues and swallowing the bullet with their booze. Um, they're making their plans for Devil's Night, they're getting ready, they're getting amped up. Um, quite frankly, they're the lowest common denominator out there. These are not rogue scholars, they're... Um, you know, we're we're not we're not dealing with people that have a ton of IQ here. Um, there's a you know guns waving around and you know just shit talking each other. But you get the idea that this is the crew. Like you're starting to recognize these faces from Eric's flashbacks, and you know that these are the people he's coming after. Yeah, um, this crew for me was the. Uh... The weak point in the movie, this crew was, they played it too over the top, almost like goofy. I feel like they, if they had all just like maybe reeled it in like 50%, it would have been fine. It, it was over the top. I was, I was kind of watching it and going, oh my God, this is just too much. <laughs> I, I, it's hard to disagree with that, but I do. <laughs> and just, just in the sense that I feel it, they had to, where soft-spoken actions are his words they're all word and very little action right it's like they're animated they're trying to boast themselves up they're fired fire up like drawing all the attention keeping people away waving the guns it's i got i took this intro scene for them you know in the in the arcade and then and at the bar mm -hmm. as the this is the lawlessness that this city has that they're so out in the open with what they're doing that no one's around. The police aren't there. You know, we've already Hudson's character Albright. There's nothing they could do. The crime is going to happen. They're they're helpless against it. So this is the it is the exaggerated look at the crime. If we look at last week when you, you know you did RoboCop, that crew was comic book as well. Granted, that was a lighter. I hate to say a lighter tone for RoboCop because it's not, but <laughs> ended satire. So I get why they were. But I often compare these two crews because you know you got four people you got four people it's obviously the vokes of it you know with um red from from that 70s show yeah and then you got <laughs> um a mike kelly from the wall and you know dreamscape everything else he's he's the voice of the crew and again this is the crew it's not the boss once you get to michael wincott then we're talking a whole different kind of performance who i thought was amazing oh yeah absolutely and uh jumping ahead, so. you're jumping ahead but his favorite role he ever did for me was in talk radio where he plays the rock and roll kid. Oh, I oh. love that movie. You're the only other person who knows that movie. Love that love, movie. Love that Our movie and we in. will Yeah, we will be reviewing Talk Radio. It's <laughs> a great movie. Great movie. Rock Tony, Tony, how many how many rewatches are we giving Talk Radio? <laughs> you don't oh. don't jump ahead. 
five five rewatches for me. Wow. Mr. Champlain? Okay, okay, let's get back to it. Um, so I'm just going to note here that in the comic book, uh, Skank did not exist. Top Dollar was just one of the dudes. Um, there was no nightclub. There was no, like, boardroom. There was none of that in the comic book. So this was actually all part of the screenwriting and changing things up a little bit more to make it a little bit more dynamic for a movie. So they made this character skank that wasn't in the comic and moved top dollar up to the crime boss. And quite frankly, I think it worked. So I think like if you had just had him just chasing around these four idiots, it might not have had quite the pop that it did at the end, you know? Yeah. Agreed. Just because it was cut out, but in the comic we're doing that when Eric comes back, he actually has a guide. He has a Mr. Miyagi in the skeleton cowboy. Yes. Which is not even mentioned in the movie. It was filmed. There is footage of it. And it's Michael Berryman from Hills Have Eyes, from oh. Smoking in the Boys Room, from Weird Science, the bald, creepy guy. Yeah. He was actually in the makeup for the skeleton cowboy. The skeleton cowboy sort of says, these are your powers. This is why you're here. This is what you're doing. And they decided it was. it took too much away from the the flow of the movie and they just cut every scene out oh no i wish they hadn't done that because des literally came to me he goes i don't understand his powers i don't understand what he's doing like i don't understand how he got where he is yeah i i did have some questions about the crow's powers in this movie and we'll get to it you know scene by scene where i actually was asking these questions maybe tony can enlighten us okay so then uh we're getting some more flashbacks to eric's former life and um I'm not exactly sure what leads him to decide to want to um, emulate the tragedy mask that's been hanging in his apartment, but he, I think he just wants to be able to scare people with like a scary face. So he puts on the white pancake and he puts on the black stuff on his face and we get that, you know, very iconic crow face. Um, anybody want to say anything about that before I move on? I think it's just the cure wrote that line of the song personally. The comic was black and white. And it's right. funny because if you watch, if you watch, if you actually see what um, Obar did in the colored, like the covers, he doesn't have white face. He's just dead. Right. So all he does is paint a ironic smile and the, the two lines down the eyes. He doesn't actually do white face. Right. So that's the difference between the comic and the, and the movie. The movie he has let's idolize the comic and put it as a good image for, right. for cinema is how I took it. Well, I Interesting. I, I kind of had a different play on it. I mean, you know, mines are kind of like clowns. And then you go back to Jack Nicholson and Batman where he says, you know, I'm, I'm smiling on the outside, but I'm crying on the inside. And I kind of felt like uh, Eric Draven was putting this mask on so he could go out and, you know, and almost take on a, a different persona to kill all these people. And, you know, because it wasn't him, like we were saying, I feel like he put this on to kind of like be someone else while he did it. I mean, I don't know. Well, I mean, which makes sense because what you were saying about how he wasn't really comfortable with what he had to do. Yeah. It's almost like giving him a, a persona that he can lose himself in while he takes care of business, essentially. And, and then and then wipe away at the end. Yes. Yeah. So, so um, I also do want to say that because the crow is a character and then Eric Draven, the crow is a character. Oh, as I'm going ahead, I will refer to Eric as Eric. And if I'm saying the crow, I'm actually talking about the bird. Just so, okay. you're, so we don't get confused. <laughs> okay. Well, let's talk um, about the bird. The bird was great. Every time I saw the bird in this, I got chills and I got a, 
a feeling in my stomach that made me feel melancholy. I, I love the bird. Yeah, a beautiful bird. And I'm sure it's more than more than one. I'm, they don't use the same one usually through the whole film. Seven of them, I think. Was it seven? I think so. That's great. Yeah, I love them. They're beautiful birds. So, all right. So let's see here. Uh, so uh, we now are in Gideon's Pawn Shop, and Tintin is selling a stolen purse. There's blood on the purse, so you can imagine that it probably was not taken easily. Um, the crow can see him, and Eric is seeing through the crow's eyes. The crow brings him towards Gideon's pawn shop. He's basically saying, this is, this is your first clue. Come here. Um, he approaches Tintin, who's ready to throw down right away. A uh, fight ensues where you see how strong Eric is. Uh, you know, even if he gets hurt, he comes right back. Um, he's recovering quickly. And Tintin is like a master with knives. He's flipping them, he's throwing them, and Eric is just outclassing him. He catches a knife in midair right before it hits him in the face and whips it back at him. And uh, that's where the scene ends. So you're kind of up in the air as to what's going to happen with the two of them. Like, he stabbed Tintin, you know he's hurt him, but you're, you don't really know exactly what's going to happen because we're going to break off to another scene. So anything about this scene that, that strikes you? Go ahead, Tony. Um, I actually like the, the Gideon pawn shop scene in the sense that um, it, it it gives them it gave them another reason to do the things that they do. They're not just you know they're not just blowing things up. They actually are just this low level scum who rob people and then sell their, their goods. It's it just mm -hmm. to me, like I guess it added another level to them. And we got to meet Gideon, who's just the slime ball, always yeah. played, always played well by by uh, Joe Polito. Um, and yeah, but to me, I, I have to admit the knife fight was very underwhelming. It, it was a good that you see, uh, Brandon Lee bring to the role, but again, knowing what the comic was and knowing what he can do, I was just, I wanted more from it. I felt it could have been a little bit more intense and I mm -hmm. feel that they tried, it just didn't, it didn't reach it. Yeah. On the first watch, I agree with you a hundred percent, Tony. I was like, this sucks. I'm like, you know, because he started getting his ass handed to him by Tintin when he picks up the stick and he starts like beating Brandon Lee down. And I'm like, I'm like, what is going on? He's kicking his ass here. And uh, and I wanted it to be I wanted him to have more power. I wanted him to be whooping ass on these guys with ease. But then on the second watching again, I have to go back to it. This was Eric Draven versus Tintin. And Eric Draven is not a tough guy. He's a rocker. He's he's not a fighter. Tintin is a badass. And this is the first kill. I don't think that um, Eric Draven was yet comfortable with his powers and what he could do. And uh, I think that for that reason, he was a little underwhelming in this fight. All right. I kind of have to agree. I felt like, uh, you know, like you said, he definitely takes a, a licking, you know, and um, I think maybe about like right at the end of the scene, he kind of snaps into it. He's like, if I don't do something now, I'm gonna get beat here and I'm never gonna finish what I'm here, I'm here to do. Yeah, so. and he picks up speed as the movie goes on. He gets he gets a little bit more confident in his ass kicking. <laughs> so now we're in a nightclub called Trash and T-Bird's making his way through the crowd to meet with Top Dollar, who's played by Michael Wincott. 
However, he's informed by Grange, who's played by the indemitable Tony Todd, also known as Candyman. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that the man himself is in a meeting. Uh, him and his sister, Micah, played by Bai Ling, have had a sexual interlude with a woman who is now deceased. Top Dollar says, I think we broke her. And his sister decides she likes her eyes and is closing in on her with a knife. So I find that to be disturbing. <laughs> yeah. Um, this, this scene right here really reeks of the mid 90s. We're going to get some tramp stamps. We're going to get some bad <laughs> tribal tattoos. <laughs> I mean, I mean, pretty much what else you got? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that's all I have to say. That shower scene. I'm like, wow, look at that tattoo. That's that's a lot of commitment on that back. <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah. a nice introduction of Michael Wincott is it, again, <laughs> for me, but Outside of that, all right, he's the boss. We can see he's the he's the calm opposite to the gang's completely over the top outrageousness. So, and it like needed it. Yeah. So it, there's the balance. Okay, let's let's move on. Yeah, I mean, he definitely. I think this is where he's holding the snow globe, and he says some weird stuff about when he was a kid, and his dad talks to him about death, and it's like, okay, like, that's a, sounds like you had a great relationship with your father, so. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely kind of a little bit of a weird scene, but you know, you kind of definitely get a, um, you get the inclination that these two are a little weird and a little unhinged, and probably a lot of power and a lot of money has led to them just completely being bizarre now. I'll tell you the bad guy that really played well in this movie for me that um, I kind of wish they all had been modeled after a little more with their um, their personalities was Fun Boy. He was, uh, he played it just right, man. He was a little over the top, but he was very like San Francisco, kind of cool dude. And uh, I really liked his character. And um, and he was the most believable bad guy for me. I mean, except for uh, obviously um, Top Dollar, which was the best. Yeah. I mean, Michael Wincott is just, he's really yeah, good. Awesome. So, yeah. Yeah. So Sarah has gone to the pit and she sees her mother there and uh, her mother is busy with fun boy. And it's clear that this is kind of a regular occurrence. She's giving her mother some sass and probably well-deserved because her mother is very much an absentee mother. Uh, it's clear their relationship is very strained. Uh, her mom, Darla, gives her some money to get some dinner and Sarah informs her that the police have already fed her. So... Yeah, it's just it's kind of an uncomfortable scene between the two of them. And did you, um, did you call her an absentee mother? Yeah, <laughs> I did. <Okay>. Why? <laughs> um, I'm not sure that quite that brushstroke quite covers it, but OK. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, OK, you know, so morphine, morphine junkie hooker, but OK. <laughs> yeah, I mean, fair enough. I guess I was trying to be kind. <laughs> tomato tomato you know <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness so next we are returning to gideon's and uh this is a really great scene to me i find it to be uh, a fascinating scene eric forces his way into the pawn shop you know gideon's like we're closed and screaming at him and he breaks the door down and you know gideon is kind of like hey you owe me a new door and it's like he's not catching on that he's actually in a lot of trouble here um you know he is, does he stab him through the hand? I think he stabs him through the hand at this point. Uh, tells him that he's got to return the engagement ring he that uh, he had given to Shelly because Tintin and pawned that engagement ring to Gideon, as he does with the rest of his stuff. And uh, 
we flash over to the scene where Tintin's body's being carried away. So you, you know, he's basically, Eric has gone in, has told Gideon what he's up to and why he's there. But now you find out that that's how he knows that the ring is there because Tintin is dead. He's got many knives sticking out of him and there's a gigantic crow in blood on the wall. So you can see what where that actually went. So Tintin actually like obviously spilled a little of the tea before he died um, and has given him a heads up as to where to go next. And um, I kind of thought that that was a cool scene because you're dealing with Albrecht and the detective and I forget the detective's name, but that detective and him are butting heads like crazy. Um, you know, the detective is like, this is my crime scene and all this stuff. And it's like, it's clear that these two have been going at it for a while. And it kind of sets up the animosity between them that carries throughout the entire movie. Yeah, for sure. The detective is like a cheap version of James almost. <laughs> totally I was, is. I was going to say, who's the guy in, in, in Die Hard? There was two of them. And it's yeah. the other guy in Die Hard. Yeah, that always plays that kind of cop. <laughs> yeah, the other, the other Johnson. Yeah. Oh, Marco Rodriguez. His yeah. name was Torres yeah. in yeah. the movie. And then also James Almost from Blade Runner, which is the guy who he really reminded me of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, Tony, what were your thoughts on the pawn shop scene? Um, one of my favorites of the whole movie, just because you first, this is where you start to see him testing the power, realizing he can play it to his advantage. And you start to see, again, the crossover between the evil he can be, but the you know, he, he recites the, the raven, you know, suddenly there was a tap, tap, tapping at my door. He mm -hmm. plays with them. You know, he, he still has himself there trying to, to, to work it in, but it comes across as almost um, evil, for lack of a better word. It's like him reciting jokes and cracking jokes during his... Always was one of my favorite things that he did. And again, once he gets his hands on the locker, the little lockbox, all the rings, he's just like, no, no, no. And he hits the one, and he doesn't even get it to a word out before. Just pain, the painful, the pain that shoots through his body as soon yeah. as he touches it is like my favorite scene in, in this part because it, it, it speaks volumes. You didn't need mm -hmm. to do anything. They didn't need to do a flashback. You you know what you just did, and it was perfect. Yeah, this was one of my favorite scenes too for a couple of reasons. One was um, there were some shots like there was a close up of his face where he's drooling. And it's it's awesome, man. I mean, there's some really, really great close-ups of the crow in this, and I mean the the crow being Eric Draven. Right. Um, also, when he's going through the wing, the rings, he picks up the ring, the right one, but you'll notice his eyes are closed, and he's he doesn't recognize it from sight. He recognizes it from a power, and this is one of my questions with the the crow's powers. He has this like um, this ability to feel things and then see visions in his head after he touches people or items a couple times in the movie. And he's going through the box. He's going through the rings. He's got his eyes open. He's looking at some rings. And then he closes his eyes and he looks away as he goes through the last couple. And then he hits the ring and he realizes he's got the ring. But he does it with uh, an ability that's not his eyesight. Right. One of the other points of the of the cowboy that I, I did forgot to he does explain the power structure, but one of the main points of it is the fact that you are here, quote, alive to open revenge. If you interfere in any other part 
of anyone else's life, you're going to lose your powers, and you're you're just you're you're pretty much nothing. Hmm. So that's when he sends it on his way. We'll get into more of that after, but yes, as soon as he feels that, that is the at, at that point he starts wearing it around his neck, and that's the pretty much I always took it as that's the talisman power to move forward. And from this point on, I feel he becomes more vicious because he has the strength of the ring, the pain from the ring. Mm, good point. I agree with that, Tony. And then it's funny because when he gives the girl the ring back at the end, he really starts to transform back into Eric. Yep. So go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say also, I love this scene because he takes all the rings in the box with him, the other rings, and he's throwing them at Gideon and he's saying, this is a life that you destroy, that you had a hand in destroying. And it was like, you know, that's really powerful, you know, like a reminder to somebody who is, you know, you might think that you're clean because you're sitting in this shop and just buying these things, but you're making it possible for people to make money off of other people's grief, you know? And I thought that that was powerful. And then of course, when he puts all the rings into the shotgun, <laughs> that's also a little lovely bit. He just shoots the, uh, oh, the, do you smell gasoline? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, in Gideon's defense, I mean, some people do just, you know, pawn their wedding rings. I mean, not, considering the area, that's probably also not unheard of. Yeah. But you also have to think that it's very possible that he's getting a lot of jewelry and other things from these hoodlums. And now. he knows because he saw the blood on the handbag. I mean, he's not stupid. He's a scumbag. No. Yeah, he's just a scumbag. Right. Um, so at this point, he shoots the shotgun into Gideon's, Gideon's blows up, and Albrecht arrives right around the time that Eric is walking out. Um, he informs him that he's the one that took, uh, killed Tintin, and he says, you like the coat? Because he's wearing Tintin, Tintin's coat. And he also informs Albrecht that the rest of T-Bird's crew is dead, they just don't know it yet. Albrecht is distracted by looters and Eric just disappears into thin air, which I thought that that was always a nice little bit that he just poof and he's gone. Yeah. <laughs> they acknowledged it each time, which was great. Yeah. He's always like, Oh great. <laughs> then it is isn't this where he says, at least he didn't do that walking against the wind shit. <laughs> yeah. I, I, in this scene, you know, this was one of the moments in the movie, the second watch around where I was really seeing, um, you know, that he was more comfortable being Eric Draven than he was being the Crow. And, you know, and I thought the performance was was really genuine. I liked it a lot. Excellent. So now Top Dollar is being informed that Gideon's pawn shop is burned down. And he's saying, I didn't give clearance for that. Like, you know, that's a place where we're fencing our stuff. I didn't tell anyone that that was okay. And so he wants to know how it happened. And he basically tells T-Bird, get on it and figure out what happened. And of course, there's like the the prerequisite giant pile of cocaine in front of him at the time. So it's, you know, just goes to show the wholesome family content that's happening in the crow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, the half sister, um, mm -hmm. what's her name? Micah. Uh, Micah. She's, uh, she's always playing with eyeballs and people's eyeballs. And yes. I, and you know, obviously after seeing it, it was easy to go back and see this, but these are foreshadowing scenes that she's going to have her eyes picked out by the crow. I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. she says, uh, I think at some point she says, you know, the, the soul is within the eyes and things like that. So yeah. she's setting herself up for it, you know. And and so does Top Dollar. He also talks about how all the, you know, the power of the man is in his eyes. And yeah, so that's that's mentioned quite a few times in the movie. Mm -hmm. 
so next we run into Sarah almost getting hit by a car. You know, she's taken off after being disappointed by Darla once again. And Eric comes out of nowhere and grabs her and saves her. And uh, she doesn't recognize him. She's, you know, she says something about him looking like a clown. And she is, you know, basically flipping off the guy that almost hit her. And um, she she's talking about the weather, says that she wants to be able to ride her skateboard without it being wet. And he says, can't rain all the time. And she says, Eric, and turns around and he's gone again. So he's done his disappearing act again. But that definitely was like something that she knew him to say. It was in one of his songs. So this has tipped her off that that was Eric. What are you supposed to be, a clown or something? Sometimes. It's more like surfing than skating. I wish the rain was out just once. Can't rain all the time. Eric? We have a very brief scene of Albrecht back in the station. He's starting to put two and two together. He's drawing the crow face on the the picture of Eric Draven, which I thought was pretty funny. Um, but he, you know, obviously in his mind, he logically he's saying, this guy's dead. I saw him die. Like, there's no way it's him, but it looks like him. Yeah, so we get a little we get a little information in the police station here in this scene that um that I missed the first time around. Like I wasn't really sure why those guys broke into the apartment and, you know killed and raped Eric and his fiance. And then you realize that, you know, they were being evicted. I, I, I imagine the top dollar owns the building mm -hmm. and they were being evicted and they were basically squatting at that point. So the gang was being sent in to muscle them out because, uh, you know, the courts weren't getting them out quick enough. Am I right with that, Tony? They basically just petition. called it like a salon. There was a petition from everybody in the building saying that nothing was being fixed. They had complaints against it and that went that right basically hired by the landlord top dollar to go in and like yeah you got some problems with this let me show you what the problems are really going to be like take you know take it all back and they just crossed the line and went huh yeah i i yeah no it said the cops said they were fighting tenant eviction that's what the uh that's what hmm. the uh what's his name well said. you never know because that's what the landlord could say after the fact and if the landlord is top dollar right you know yeah okay yeah good point good point so um, now we're going to a scene of Fun Boy's apartment, and he and Darla are shooting up morphine, and Eric arrives through the window. Uh, Fun Boy shoots him through his hand. They all watch as the hand heals itself. Fun Boy takes several more shots, but Eric absorbs them all, and this is where he tells the Jesus joke. He hands the innkeeper three nails and asks him, can you put me up for the night? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Stop me if you heard this one. Jesus Christ walks into a hotel. Ow. <laughs> he hands the innkeeper three nails and he asks, Don't you ever fucking die? You put me up for the night? And of course, we can't talk about this scene without mentioning this is the scene where um, Brandon Lee was shot and killed. So it was this scene. Yeah, it's funny, too, because uh, Bruce Lee had a premonition that Brandon would actually die by a gunshot, you know, when he was a kid. So I thought that really? was kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that. I hate to say I didn't know it was the scene. I thought it yeah, was the, the, the attack scene. scene. No, it's this one. Well, the thing I read had said that it was the scene and he shot at him and it hit him right above the belly button. And he yeah. was supposed to just light off a squib so that you'd see the blood. And when he didn't, they called cut and he didn't get back up. 
and they said it was this scene. So maybe it was okay. a different scene, but I, I thought it was the one that shot him out the window is what I thought. But again, if you read that, I'll go on what you say. But um, Michael Massey was just amazing in this scene. Just going from completely high to dumbfounded to over the top gleeful to Joyce to completely shocked. Like just like, I love his performance. He's just like amazed. Like, how could you do this? And compared to the other villains, I feel like, like, you know, obviously, you know, um, Patrick Kelly is the, is the words, the brain, the good performance. I felt that he played a great junkie. Yeah. <laughs> so in the scene. So, I mean, I, I love that. His whole back and forth with him. And when he said the Jesus joke, I was elated because that's like one of my favorite little jokes that he pulls out in the comic. Put that in the, in the movie. Yeah, I was thrilled that they put that in the movie too because it's it's one of those jokes that you hear it and you're like, oh, like it's it's so yeah. shocking, but it's so simple. Yeah, Fun Boy for me was like like I had said earlier, by far the most genuine villain in the movie. I loved him. I thought his performance was really good. Um, this scene also is going to bring in another power that the crow has. So he grabs um, he grabs the mom by the arm and he and he draws the morphine out of her veins. Yeah. So, Tony? Yep, just getting to that. That was good. Um, this is actually, this scene, you know, mother is the word for God on the lips of children. Like, such an amazing, impactful line. Look. Mother is the name for God on the lips and hearts of all children. Do you understand? And that's when the morphine comes out. He does use that power part of his vengeance so in a quote cut scene at that point once he's you know at that point he's already incapacitated fun boy in the other room mm -hmm. so he thinks he's safe at that point fun boy attacks him with a razor and slashes at him and eric puts his arms up to defend himself before taking him down again so when we see eric again he's got duct tape wrapped all around his arms and we don't know where it came from because he lost his power it, what he did for darla went again his vengeance oh. trip, trip, which is what the skeleton cowboy told him, only focus on your mission. That was not part of it. So he lost his power and couldn't heal those wounds. So he had to duct tape it up to stop the bleeding. Again, oh, cut, cut because the skeleton cut. Because the skull cowboy was cut, they had to cut. I wish they had left it in. Yeah, Again, me, too. me too. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think these are very, very important uh, plot devices <laughs> that you have to have. Yeah, because it ex it explains how and why things happen, and like there's definitely things that happen, like her, him pushing the morphine out of her arm. Like, how did he do that? I don't know. Why did he do that? I don't know. Like, well, I know why he did it yeah. because he cares about Sarah. Yes. But yeah, yeah, just um, it's but interesting. How? I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know, I'll have questions too about you know the end of the movie when he becomes basically mortal again. Maybe you can answer those, but let's not jump ahead. So. Okay. So uh, as you said, he grabs Darla. Uh, she's saying, don't hurt me, don't touch me. He grabs her, uh, makes the morphine leave her veins and tells her her daughter is out on the streets waiting for her. And she takes off like a shot because between him saying that, her watching the morphine leave her veins and the fact that he just kicked the crap out of Fun Boy, she's out of there. So <laughs> she's getting a little bit of a wake up call. Um, downstairs, Grange is drinking in the pit. Um, he is, I'm sorry, Gideon is drinking in the pit, not Grange. Grange comes to speak to him uh, and tells him that he's got a meeting with Top Dollar. 
but he happens to notice as Darla runs down and out into the night. And he's suspicious of this. He thinks something's going on, especially where they just heard about Gideon's blowing up. So he he's thinking, I better go check this out. So he heads upstairs to Funboy's apartment. And when he arrives, Funboy is laying on the floor, many hypodermics sticking out of his chest. And it's there's a bloody crow on his chest. Eric is on the windowsill and he gives Grange the old shh before he disappears out the window. He looks out the window to see where Eric's going and the alley is completely empty, even though they're four stories up. Yeah. It's just <laughs> you're walking against the windshield, you know, just a spirit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, I think it's pretty cool that that scene, because if you kind of watch it, I think they filmed it in reverse to make yeah. it look like, I think he actually came in the window and shushed. And then when they, sh they put it in the movie, they reversed it. So that it looks, it looks almost unworldly and a little strange when he does it. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. All right, so back at Albrecht's apartment, Eric appears suddenly, and he asks the policeman to fill him in on what happened to him and Shelley. I mean, he obviously has a pretty decent idea, but um, Albrecht lets him know what happened about the murders. Tells him that Shelley had, you know, lingered for thirty hours trying to fight for her life, and she just didn't make it. Um, uh, Eric wants to know why he didn't do more and the cops tell him that there's just only so much we can do. Nobody wants to talk after what happened to you, the two of you. You know, like, do you think anybody else in that building was going to step up at that point? No. Um, at some point he touches Albrecht's head and he gets all the memories of Shelley's 30 hours of pain and uh, it's in incapacitating. He falls to the ground. You can tell Albrecht, Albrecht wants to help him, but you know, there's only so much this guy can do. And, you know, uh, Eric says, uh, if you don't mind, I'm just going to leave it. I'm going to use your front door. So that this was uh, an, uh, this is a scene that I know Des had problems with. So I'm going to let you go ahead first. Yeah, the first time I watched it, I had problems with it. But this was back when I was really kind of craving, um, you know, uh, a Joker type character, kind of like um, Heath Ledger played in the Batman movie. Like I was really craving that kind of a, you know, like an insane crow character, just full of vengeance and darkness. And on the second watching, when I started, you know, realizing I was watching a man that had lost everything, that had a good heart, I, I liked the I liked the scene a lot better. It, it humanized the crow for me, and I and I thought it was touching when he said to him, "You know, is it okay if I just use the door?" Like he just wanted to feel like normal, like himself for a minute. Right. And I found it to be touching the second time around. I found a lot of this movie on the second watching to have a lot of heart. You know, especially Brandon Lee's performance had a lot of heart. Good. Yeah, I don't have much to add to it. it was, it did everything it needed to do. It came yes. the dots, um, made a dead brand. Eric realized, even though this guy was a good guy before, he had literally stuck by my wife trying to make sure everything was going to be good and realized what he did. That there are good, just a terrible place. It established all that, that, you know, it, it, it did what it needed to do. Right. Yeah. And honestly, I think it's very important to the scene of him taking the the memories of those 30 hours of pain because it comes into play again later because at one point i was like well could you just remove this scene and have it not impact the movie and i was like oh you can't because of that that the, him being aware of those 30 hours of pain is so important at the end of the movie yeah and there's and there's very very little comic relief in this movie if any and it was um 
I don't know, it was almost like a necessary scene. You know, it gave me uh, two or three minutes just to kind of, uh, you know, just kind of enjoy that actor. You know, he's great in Ghostbusters. And, you know, we got a little, we got a little relief, a little relief from all mm -hmm. the drama. A moment to breathe. It worked. So a tr uh, back at Club Trash, Gideon's now having his meeting with Top Dollar. He tells him what happens at the pawn shop. He tells him the guy's name was Eric Draven and that he had a bird with him. He also tells him how he shot the guy, but he healed. After extracting all the information he can from Gideon, Top Dollar just pretty much gives him a sword through the throat and shoots him a couple times because that's pretty much how he feels about pretty much everybody. Um, you know, there's not a ton that's happening in this. You're just kind of understanding how Top Dollar's collecting information about Eric at this point. Yeah. I love the line. Will you just die already? And he pumps two shots in one. <laughs> yeah, Top Dollar is not uh, a soft and cuddly type. No. No. <laughs> and you know, he's also when he opens up that um that closet with all the swords in it, you're gonna get the idea that this guy is, you know, well versed in jousting and fighting and swords, and that's gonna come into play later in the movie, you know, when he goes up against the crow and you can really see that again, the crow is not He's not a fighter. It's, you know, without the little bit of powers that he has, I mean, he's 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 outmatched by, you know, a couple of these bad guys. Yeah, true enough. So we have a musical interlude here. Eric is on the roof of his old home playing the guitar he stole from Gideon's. Because, um, of course, you why wouldn't you? Um, and Sarah, at the same time, is returning to her home. She digs through some old albums and finds his old band's album, puts it on, and it starts skipping on the line, can't rain all the time. So that's a little callback to what he said to her in the uh, streets. Yep, absolutely. Great scene. Tony, what'd you think of him playing the guitar on the roof? That was, the, for me, honestly, that was the only, one of the few cringeworthy scenes. I, I get why they did it. That was his, he, it was almost like he was playing himself out. Now I have to let Eric go and the crow take over. Yeah. And it was, to me, it was so heavy handed the way it was shot. You know, it was close up on the hands. Obviously, that's not him playing. It's like, as a musician, you know those things. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's hard not to, like, oh, come on, <laughs> pull back, show stranger things. That you're like, let me see Eddie playing the piano. So it's just, it, I didn't I didn't need it. I, I We got he was in a band. We got that he was a rock star. He had the long hair. The, the, the band promo picture in the police station. He stole the guitar. I didn't, we didn't need it. Yeah, I didn't. I don't want to foreshadow an upcoming uh, review, but it felt a little Sammy Kerr to me. <laughs> yeah, but not in a good way. Like but, is yeah, not Sammy not Kerr. in a good way. <laughs> even the hip, even the hip slaps are Sammy Kerr hot. Yeah. Oh, please. This is just cringy. You know. We'll get there. Uh, yeah. This this scene for me, you know, you have that the amp hanging off the roof, and um, yeah, it was. You know, it was okay. It was fine. Yeah. I, I agree with you with everything you said, though, Tony, 100%. But it was fine. It was fine. an empty building. Where are you plugging it in? There's no power. There's no yeah, power. What are you doing? Another <laughs> question. It's a year later. This is like some awesome loft apartment. Like, it's not rented yet. And who's feeding the cat? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the the building uh, has been, what's the word I'm looking for? Not abandoned. Condemned? but Yeah, it's been condemned. Um yeah. So, I mean, I suppose that's why nobody's living in it, but yeah. Yeah, there was a, um, is this scene, this guitar, him playing the guitar in the scene, is this the same scene where it pans out and he's sitting 
um, Indian style on the roof. I think that's later. Yeah, because whenever that scene is, that is maybe the worst cinematography I've ever seen in a real movie. Like, it literally looks like some little kid drew a picture of the crow sitting on a roof. It's just like, whoa, that's that made it through production. Like, wow. Yeah, that was probably a scene they probably could have cut. They probably didn't yeah. need that one. I mean, well, it's, it's very it... obvious that Alex Proyas's fingerprints are all over this because oh, yeah. he was a music video producer. Like, that's what he did. He directed music videos. So it, it, it has a, that flavor. Yeah. He did Dark City before this. Am, am I correct on that? So, yes. I mean, mm-hmm. This could have been Dark City 2 for the sets and yeah, completely. It's funny because um there's a scene coming up in the boardroom when the crow goes to you know to to collect um shank and uh one of the henchmen i swore it was eminem i'm like is that eminem and it <laughs> it wasn't eminem but it looked just like him it was one of the uh generic you know uh villains right. and i googled it i said you know was eminem in the crow and it said no but he actually wanted to be in the uh, the second Crow movie that didn't happen. Mm. And uh, it was going to be him and I think DMX. Interesting. I mean, yeah. they've, they've literally said they're going to reboot the Crow a thousand times. And it goes into pre-production and falls apart every single time. And quite frankly, with the uh, talk of the Crow being cursed, like maybe we should just let it go. <laughs> you know yeah yeah that's that was funny tony what did you hear about that because what i had uh read was that they were talking about this you know the set and uh the stuntman and everybody were talking about this movie being cursed before brandon lee was ever shot you know i guess the guy had broken his ribs and electrocution stunts have gone wrong the sets were burned yes um, the guy was, drove was, onto the lot and like r- r- like drove yeah. over a bunch of yeah. the back lot yeah he went crazy a poltergeist kind of thing you know it's like sometimes it's just you should just stop you know the vampire star was coming back and it was huge so it, it hit at the right time but you know if he didn't die would it if he if he lived through it would have just been another action i don't know yeah if brandon lee didn't die i don't think this would be quite as big a chunk of um pop culture as it is i think it'd be a little bit more niche I think but, you probably get the looky lose that went to see it just because he died, which, you know, is sad that people do stuff like that. But yeah. you have to think that there are people that went to see the movie because of that reason, not because they actually wanted to go and see it. Yeah. It would still be one of my favorites because I just I hope that if nothing else, you know, if people listen to this podcast and, you know, they've seen the movie once, like the first time I saw it, we're like, eh, it's not for me. Or if they haven't seen it at all and they watch it once, that they take from this that, you know, if you watch it a couple of times, you know, you can really start to see more in the movie. I think it's a lot better of a movie than maybe a lot of people think it is. You know, they only watched it one time. They maybe weren't like big Crow comic fans like you and Delin were that were just, you know, a movie fan that watched it hoping for, you know, maybe a maybe they thought they were going to be seeing a different movie like I did and then, you know, just never went back to it. Because I think if you go back and you watch it without all the expectations that maybe you'll see something that you didn't see the first time. Right. hundred percent. And it, you know, to touch on that, you know, nothing, it's, it's, it's that thing that gets stuck, you know, it was the thorn in my side that, you know, it's like, well, thank God we had Deadpool being the first rated R comic book movie. It's like, Blade, we're forgetting the crow. It's like most right. of those rated R comic movies that had a huge cultural influence 
but everyone forgets about them because they were quote horror. Yeah. Right. But, but again, another discussion for another time. Well, Tony, you know, I love that you said that because you know, there's certain albums and I don't care what genre of music you like or don't like, there's certain albums that are just like, they're the top of the mountain, you know, Jane's addiction, nothing shocking. Um, you know, Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction. These are like groundbreaking albums that like, you know, set markers. And I feel like Deadpool is one of those movies. Like it's, it's almost a perfect movie. But you also have to wonder, would we have gotten Deadpool if we didn't have Blade and if we didn't have the crow? We wouldn't have had it if we didn't have Ryan Reynolds. So <laughs> this That's is very, right. very true. <laughs> There's no order to blame but him. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, okay. <laughs> so now we're gonna get to uh, T Bird in his car, and he's with Skank. He tells Skank to go get road beers, go in the store, get road beers. And while he is waiting in his car, Eric ambushes him from the back, puts a gun to his head, and tells him to drive. And as they're in the car, he's telling him to drive faster and faster, which of course uh, attract the attention of some police and the police are giving chase. Um, Skank saw T-Bird taking off. I don't recall if he actually saw um, Eric so, in the car with him. Oh, he did. Oh, okay. So he runs out and gets hit by a car because <laughs> of course he did, because he's a complete mess. Uh, but he, he jacks the car and takes off after them. Uh, this ensues in like a chase scene. We have the police chasing T-Bird's car. You have Skank in the piece of crap car trying to keep up. And eventually Skank pulls out right in front of the police. The police crash into him. It stops the chase. And Eric gets T-Bird onto the docks. He tapes him into his driver's seat. There's a bunch of C4 and explosive in the trunk. He sends him off the end of the dock with the car exploding. Skank witnesses it all sees that Eric has left the crow symbol in fire and is returning to Top Dollar to A, look for help, and B, to report what he's seen. Yeah, Tony, let me know what you think of this scene because I, I have some some thoughts. As dumb as it is, when the fire goes to the, to the crow. Shit, some yeah. Awesome, oh, yeah. awesome looking. Dumb as hell. How, come on, you don't have the time for this. You gotta have <laughs> I love it. I will every time I'm like, oh, I'm waiting for that scene. There it is. Um, again, I love that. Um, I, I keep forgetting his name. Um, the, the bad guy who's taped to the seat. Oh, T Bird. <laughs> T Bird yeah. is completely out of his mind. Like, this is the really real world. You know, you're dead. Here he starts reciting Paradise Lost like he did in the, in the, uh, in the apartment, reading it to mm -hmm. Shelley. Mm -hmm. And it flashes back to him. That's all he can mutter out. He's in such disbelief as he as as he, as he dies. And I thought it was a perfect comeuppance for his character. That was yes. Great. Yeah, I agree. And you know that again, like you said, that you know him lighting up that uh, that crow, and you know the overhead shot. It's great. I love watching. You know, um, love watching T Bird's car explode you know, in the air, going in the water. And then, you know, you also get the, you know, how, how like genuinely hurt Shank is by the death of T-Bird. Like he is a, he's a T-Bird fanboy. Oh yeah. He's, he's devastated that he's gone. Like, no, no T-Bird. Like, you know, you're feeling it. And uh, I liked the scene a lot. I thought it was cool. 
Yeah, it has it has a lot of uh, eye appeal for sure, especially yeah. in a movie that had some spots that were a little a little dicey cinematography wise. Like this is a little chef's kiss. It's it's nice and it's like he said, it's an iconic scene. Yeah, it's fun, Kel. Absolutely. So uh, the morning comes and Darla is suddenly making Sarah breakfast, and this is very strange to Sarah. Um, she's like, I don't even know how you like your eggs. And Sarah says, I don't even like eggs, you know? Um, and they have the, a very kind of combative conversation until Sarah realizes that Darla's, tar Darla is trying. She's, she didn't take a, a drug that's making her like this. She's trying to be better to her, trying to be nicer to her. And she gives her the benefit of the doubt and they have a little moment where they start to reconnect. And it's nice to see, like it gives you hope that Sarah's life's gonna be a little better going forward. So let me ask you guys this, cause you know, if she's a morphine addict, you know, this isn't gonna, this isn't gonna happen. She's gonna be back out looking for dope the next morning and that's it. Doesn't matter what the crow said. Did the crow cure her of her addiction when he sucked the morphine out of her veins? Oh, I mean, that's that's what I took it as. Is that's why she turned to him and okay. had like a moment of clarity. Right. Because yeah. it goes out of range. He lets her go. She turns around and faces him. There's a beat, and she's like, "Oh my god, my daughter's out there." And that's why she runs. Yeah. So I feel she's completely all in on being a mom now. Yeah, like I don't think she was running because she was scared. She was scared initially, but I don't think she was running because she was scared. I think she was running because she realized that she has made a real mess of things and was running to get get her act together cool i like that and you know and like you said you know the girl at first she's being standoff you know and and, and rightfully so you know she's yeah. been abandoned by this woman her whole life but i think she realizes in that moment if she doesn't be the bigger person here then you know um her mom will probably just you know fold up shop and go back to just being a shitty mom so she says no 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 I, I like him over easy and yeah. you know she doesn't want to push her mother away in this moment yeah yeah she she stands to lose if she can't reach out like because the mother's reaching out by trying to make yep. her breakfast and trying to be so sarah has to bridge the gap and she does which is yeah. nice to see yep i thought it was i thought it was a nice scene i thought it was you know again powerful scene yep so we get a couple of uh little quick scenes that um, I'm just going to go over really quickly. Um, you see Grange and he's gone to Draven's grave and finds it empty. He's kind of like, Ooh, okay. <laughs> There's a gigantic coffin lid and a bunch of dirt and no body. So, um, of course he's going to return to top dollar and tell him that. And also Albrecht gets suspended for misconduct. So these are kind of quick scenes that don't have a ton to do uh, for talking about, but I just wanted to make sure that we put them out there. So we're aware of what's going on. Yeah, well, I think it does have something to do with it because, you know, he's going to go and report this back to uh, Top Dollar. And Top Dollar is starting to realize that Eric Draven, you know, has come back from the dead 100%. His guys killed him. And he's getting these powers somewhere. And I'm starting to get the feeling that his half-sister is, you know, whispering in his ear. And I don't know if this is ever really actually said in the, in the dialogue, but I think he's maybe has his eyes on that power, on that pro power. Tony, oh, what sure. do you think? Well, I think that's what 100%. Yeah, you're, you're completely right with that. And that's why I think when it comes down to it, they put two and two together. And again, jumping ahead, when she starts trying to capture the bird, knowing that's what that's the source of his power. Mm -hmm. So they, so they insert, so they put into the movie part of it, you know, that's in their right. 
that once the body start, once the bird starts to get injured, he starts to be injured. Right. Mm. But my question was now, it feels to me like top dollar feels like he might be able to absorb that power from the bird. But I thought the power really only came if you were, you know, wronged and you were exacting, you know, revenge. I, I mean, I agree with that, but I think the top dollar and his sister probably think that there's some way they can do something, you know, whether it be ingesting the the bird's eyes or something, because like they've yeah, got the crazy they, eye thing, exactly. you know. <laughs> they don't. They don't know. They're just going on what they're used to doing, cutting out and frying up eyeballs, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's <a> family recipe. <laughs> oh, oh my God. goodness. Okay. So, so yeah. So Albrecht gets gets suspended. So now he's kind of at loose ends. Um, meanwhile, Sarah returns to the abandoned building that Eric and Shelley used to live in, and um, you know she's calling out for him. She's talking to him as if he's there, and she kind of kind of gives up. She's like, I guess I thought you cared. And all of a sudden, the sun comes out, and he's you know this is a, a little nice bit of cinematography that they threw. And the sun comes out. He's standing there. And you can see him in silhouette by the window. She runs to him. He hugs her. And um, though you don't get a lot of the discussion between them after this, um, she does say later to Albrecht that he told me I, he can't be my friend anymore because he's dead and I'm alive. So at least at some point that is put out there that she understands what's happening. Yeah. Tony? Yeah. I, I think say <laughs> just yeah, but... No, yeah. that, that's pretty true. I mean, the scene cements the fact that she was one of the few people who who was important enough to him and remembered him. Still, honestly, at this point, the movie made you feel like they didn't have a lot of people in this area, which is, and again, this is me going off on a total tangent, but it's like, as you're in bands, I like to think your bandmates would still kind of remember you and yes. kind of like want to yeah. keep hope. you very alive. And it's like, None of them even appeared in the movie. No one was even around with it. It's like small things like like they made these two completely isolated. Like Shelly and, and Eric just had this little girl they hung out with. That was yeah. like the only only humanity that we that we saw in the afterlife. Like so, there was no one else he should go see. Yeah, so Tony, you hit the nail on the head there. And this is a problem that I have with the movie on both watches. And I said this to Dylan earlier. The world felt very small very small like you said you know i mean you do get some shots from the nightclub which we didn't talk about some of these bands that are playing like there's one band with a girl with like really blonde dreadlocks some of these nightclub scenes i loved them because i was starving for some more people in this world you know and right. he played in this band and you know his band you know uh was played at this club and you know where are the fans where are his bandmates and and you know i was starving for more characters and i needed the world to feel a little bigger and on top of it feeling small because there just weren't a lot of people in the world the actual world itself felt small because the city always looked like a miniature so the whole <laughs> thing just felt tiny and compressed to me that was a problem and you hit the nail on the head with that yeah i don't mean to tear my favorite movie is but it's like no it's no like, we're not tearing yeah, it apart it but i mean it's, you know it's true you know but then again if you want to bring it back to what quote the, the cut skeleton cowboy says these are the people you got to deal with anyone outside of your anyone outside of this you're going to lose your power you don't matter anymore so right. because she 
because Sarah made her way into the apartment, which is pretty much quote home base for Eric at that point, waiting for the for his revenge. She happened to run along with. Him. So that's why I don't feel he lost power just interacting with her and letting her know what the situation was. Again, it's a real shame that they cut the skeleton cowboy because he explains everything. So yeah, that was a huge mistake cutting that out. <laughs> So let me ask you guys one more thing. So earlier in the movie, and we didn't discuss it, it's not a big deal, but um, T-Bird is walking through the club and he drags his fingers over Eric Draven's face on the band picture on the wall in the nightclub. Yes, did you guys notice does. that? I did. Okay. And I don't know if it, I mean, I think it's kind of just like foreshadowy. I don't think he's doing it because he remembers the guy. No, I do. It seems, oh, you do? I felt like it was like a trophy moment. Like, you know, oh, like, okay. what do I you think, you. Tony? Um, I took it as, as a, a moment of recognition. I didn't take it as a, I, I did this. <laughs> you know, I didn't, I didn't no. look at it that way. Yeah. I mean, I thought they made a, they made a point of, you know, showing him rub his fingers across Eric's face. So I really didn't know what to make of it. But you know what I do love about just all movies in general and what we're doing here? I love a movie that sparks conversation and that, um, maybe three people can look at and all have a different idea of what the director was trying to say with a scene. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> I joke. I joke. Oh, man. So anyways, Hank has now uh, made his way to Top Dollar and he's relaying the tale of what happened to T-Bird. And he's barely even legible at this point. Like, it's like, he's fire it up, fire it up. Like, it's like, oh boy. Like, and I, I hated I'm, that. I hated yeah. that fire it up, fire it up thing. I thought that was so stupid throughout the entire movie. It's like, okay, I'm really surprised Top Dollar didn't just throw him out a window at that point, to be frank. Yeah. <laughs> but um, he is, now you know that Top Dollar knows exactly what happened to T-Bird. So he's really like, putting all the facts that he knows on the table and is really starting to figure out what's going on here. Um, so Sarah and Albrecht meet up back up at the hot dog stand and she tells them that she's seen somebody that's supposed to be dead. Albrecht relays that he's seen him too. And they both know that it's not going to last. Eric's going to be gone soon. Like they, 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 they're both aware that this is temporary. Um, he didn't come back for them. He's got a mission. And once it's done, he's going to be gone too. And I thought that that was, you know, a good scene because you don't expect either one of them to try to get him to stay. They both know that he's only here for one reason. It's funny though. You say he didn't come back to them, but at the end of the day, he actually saves both of them. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, a, a accidental saving, but he'll take it. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, let's see here. So top dollar is now holding a meeting with all his captains and it's to get ready for devil's night. Eric shows up busts it all up and all the men attempt to kill him. Uh, you know, it's uh, there's a little bit of conversation between Eric and Top Dollar. And uh, at some point, Top Dollar just goes, ah, you're boring me, kill him. So there's a huge shootout. Every, all of these, you know, crime captains are shooting at him. He disappears. He falls down on the floor and disappears. And the next thing you know, he's pulling dudes under the table. He's shooting people. It's a complete melee. Um, now Micah's trying to grab the bird because she sees it and she's like, okay, I'm going to go for that bird. Um, but Top Dollar quickly grabs her and Grange pulls the two of them out of there because he sees where it's going now. Um, everyone's pretty much dead and Eric can finally get his hands on Skank. 
and he does what I wish Chop Dollar had already done and throws him out the window. And it's, a, it's almost a little callback to Die Hard to me that he lands right on the police car. <laughs> right. We're going to get two of those homages from Die Hard at the end of this movie. Um, so <laughs> when when Eric comes in the room, he says to Top Dollar, you know, all I want is Shank. That's it. He goes, give me Shank. Everybody lives. Skank, Skank whatever. Yeah. And <laughs> and I and I leave. And uh, Top Dollar says no. You're not, you're not taking them. That's it. And I think at this point, like we'd already discussed, Top Dollar knows that uh, they're not going to, even when he says, you know what, I'm sick of this guy, kill him. He knows they're not going to kill him. I, I think so anyway. I mean, he's got enough evidence now that this guy survived, like, you know, numerous hits that would have killed a mortal man. He knows that Eric's not a regular guy. True, true. It's a, With all the information that he has, he has to realize that, you know, a bunch of bullets aren't going to do it. So yeah. is he t just testing the theory or did he really think it was going to kill him? I'm not sure. What do you think, I Tony? Was, I, think, I took it as he was testing it because mm -hmm. it's literally a matter of fact, like, well, you can't have. It. Yeah, it was it was it was a line in the sand. You can't have. It. It's like, well, then you're all die. Yeah, like like Top Dollar says several times in this movie, it doesn't happen in this city unless I say it does. And, you know, he he's calling the shots 100 percent. Push him to the limit, see what you can do. And that's why they ran because they knew and which is why once he gets skank you know jumping ed he becomes more mortal in his final fight because top dollar had nothing to do with the direct death of him or shelly so he's, right. a he's a regular mortal man when he finally faces him yeah because at this point gone. he thinks he's done yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you make a good point. And, you know, I mean, we're, we are jumping ahead. But in that final in that final fight scene, you know, you realize that, you know, Top Dollar never really had anything against Eric. Yeah, that's the worst part. <laughs> yeah. So it's let's not strangers. Jump. You just happen to be home. Yeah. Yep. So, so uh, at this point, the police are giving chase and Eric's running across rooftops. Albrecht is following following him from below. He's in his car watching him. Um so as soon as Eric ends up falling off of a roof and into the down to the ground, Albrecht opens the door for Eric and says, get in, you know, and he jumps in and he's taken off with him. He stops short because a cop car runs in front of him and Eric jumps out and takes off. And but if you notice that chair in the car is covered in blood, so he's not healing like he used to anymore. And this yeah. is even before the bird gets hurt. Right. Yeah. Good observation. Yeah, so he's definitely heading in that direction of being more mortal. Um, so uh, Top Dollar, Micah, and Granger in the car driving away. And she tells Top Dollar that if they kill the crow, they can kill Eric. She says the bird is the link between the land of the living and the realm of the dead. That's the key. So we now see Sarah sleeping on Shelly's grave. She's waiting for Eric because she knows that he's going to finish his job and return. So she wants to catch him before he leaves. Um, he says goodbye. He's now done with his mission. Um, he gives Sarah Shelley's ring and she leaves. But as she's heading out the, the, uh, graveyard gate, Grange grabs her and pulls her into the abandoned church. She calls for Eric. He hears her and he runs to her, even though technically he really should be returning to the land of the dead at this point. Um, Grange takes a shot at the bird and hits him. Uh, he's injured. 
and Top Dollar delivers one of my favorite things. Quick impression. Caw, caw, bang, fuck, I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Tony, so being the crow aficionado here, let's talk about what's happening to Eric at this point. I mean, the makeup is now almost back to completely gone. And is he just now basically Eric Draven for the rest of the movie? I think it's that he, once he gave the ring away, that's in it. The, in the in the movie, and the crow were the source of his power. Mm-hmm. They gave him they gave him the power to to complete his mission, and you got an injured bird and no more ring. And and again, even though it's the third one, which you did bring up, which is was, was kind of true, is that the makeup is now gone, so he's back to basic character. He's Eric Draven. Yeah, gangster. You know, you're you're screwed. Yep. Okay. So the crow is injured, but not dead yet. Albrecht appears and starts shooting so that Grange can't finish the job. Micah grabs the bird, knowing it's the key to Eric's power, and takes off with it. Grange gets killed, and Micah and Top Dollar head up to the Belfry with the injured crow and Sarah. Micah stays behind, holding on to the crow, while Top takes Sarah out onto the roof. She still has the crow, and she's shooting down at Eric and Albrecht. She hits Albrecht, and he's kind of out of commission. But the crow rallies and picks out her eyes, which is like, again, like you said earlier, like foreshadowing, that's where your power is. She, this crow is going right for them. She falls from the bell tower and she dies. Yeah. And I, what I love about this is, um, you know, it's the end of the movie. And who's going to save the day? The crow. I mean, the movie's called The Crow. Eric is pretty much, you know, He's a he's a wet napkin at this point. And, you know, the crow is the one that's going to step up and take her out. And, you know, they're not going to be pinned down by gunfire now because this bird is, you know, packed her eyes out. And, you know, basically, I don't know why she, you know, basically jumped off the, the bell tower. But well, I think she's blinded. She can't see. So she falls. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but a little bird starts pecking me in the face and I'm like chucking it on the floor. But she. <laughs> She opted to, you know, walk backwards over a railing or whatever happened. This is but, a supernatural bird. Do not disrespect the crow. No, I'm not. I'm not. I mean, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and edit that out. And we'll just leave it at. <laughs> we'll just leave it at. This bird was badass. The movie was called The Crow. And The Crow kicked her ass. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So now with her out of the way, Eric makes his way up the bell tower and he finds Top Dollar up on the roof with Sarah. Uh, he chucks Sarah, and she goes sliding down the side of the roof. She's holding on, but she's struggling. Uh, now, Top Dollar and Eric are going to end up in a sword fight. Well, Top Dollar has a sword. Eric has a weather vane. But yep, let me ask you. Let me let me stop here because I wrote this down. He pulls that weather vane out of the concrete. That seems like it would take superhuman strength. Does he still ha- have a little of the crow ability? I mean, maybe. It's. I thought he just snapped it off the chimney. I didn't realize he actually pulled it out of the concrete. Yeah, I took it as she just snapped it out. He snapped it off. Okay, good enough. Just, the shingles are falling off when she's going down, too. I just took it as it's a rough roof. Okay. Yeah, you kind of think, like, things are starting to fall apart. It's probably all rusty, and he was able to s- just snap it off. Okay. So Sarah's falling through the decaying roof. She's calling for help. You know, her feet are dangling. She's not, she can't fall. She's going to die. Um, and this distracts Eric eventually. And Top Dollar runs him through. Um, at this point, Top Dollar reveals that 
nothing happens in the city without his say so. So technically what happened to Eric and Shelly was his doing, you know, again, you were just home on the wrong night, my friend. Yep. Um, Eric grabs top dollar and pushes the 30 hours of pain that Shelly spent trying to survive into his head all at once. Top dollar discombobulated stumbles and falls off the roof and is impaled on a gargoyle, gargoyle water spout. And this is a bit of a gory shot considering it hasn't been an overly gory movie, but it's uh, yeah. it's very effective. And I love the water rushing out of the gargoyle's mouth and it turns blood red. Yeah. It's a great scene. Yeah, it's, it's really scene. good. And it's I also really love that before this scene, Top Dollar says to Eric, but you did put a smile on my face, kid. Yeah. Just bad guy till the end. He's always, yeah. always such a great character actor. Yes. Um, the guy in the 30, the 30 hours, just again, because this is what I, is it's funny because the comic um they weren't even actually what happened like that no. in, in, in the comic eric and shelly broke down the side of the road the gang drove by them in a car saw them on the side of the road completely smashed out of their heads get out of the car rape her kill him kill her and he was actually eric was actually the one who was who held on for 30 hours mm-hmm. before he died and the funny thing is reading a note that i did look up a little while ago is the 30 hours of intensive care with most of the events in the comic would be a revenge fantasy as he lies in the coma for that 30 hours that none of that actually happened it was all in his head oh so i thought that was a really interesting thing because it didn't come from shelly it really should have come from him but hey he took some liberties with the movie (laughs) yeah i mean there's definitely some things that they changed and rewrote and you know initially i guess they had written a screenplay that was so far off of what the comic was that I guess J.O. Barr was like, this isn't even the, the story anymore. Like it was just completely out there. And um, they brought in the second guy to do the rewrite. And that's when they got it to what it is now. So, you know, they could have probably written this movie. Um, it was David Shaw that wrote the ones that were not so great. And then John Shirley came in and kind of brought it back to what it is now. Right. Yeah, I mean, so many images from the set of literally Brandon Lee has the book under his arm. Yeah. Walking around the set. Like he, he basically used it as his Bible to, to to use the quotes to you know to, to get the actions right, to get the scenes right, his positioning, his walking, whatever. It's just I love the fact that he tried to honor it as much as he could. Yes. And he did. Yeah. I mean I don't know a lot about it, but I again I was very uh I was impressed with Brandon Lee's performance in this movie. I thought it, I, I can't say it enough. I just thought he brought a lot of heart to the character. Yeah, I agree. So we're closing in on our final scenes here. Eric grabs Sarah before she can fall and they help one another back down the bell tower to find Albrecht still alive. And I think this is the next diehard uh, callback you were going to call on is when Albrecht takes a, a drag of his smoke and then spits it out because he's like, nope, I'm good. Yeah. so eric disappears and the police arrive this is becoming a bit of a of a habit with him too disappearing before the police get there but you know that's how he rolls um eric lays on shelly's grave you know at this point his makeup's completely washed away he's clean-faced essentially uh, and she she appears to him and she comes and you know the bright light behind her touches his face to bring him back to the realm of the dead with her um, and the next scene, when you see their graves, Eric's grave is completely flat. Like it doesn't even look like it had been opened at all. Uh, the crow returns the ring to Sarah. 
and Albrecht is carted away in an ambulance after telling the, detect the detective that his vigilante is on the roof. So he's telling him that Top Dollar was the vigilante, which would mean that there'd be no more investigation into this. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Tony, so um, the end of this movie, like she said, you know, the grave shows no sign of um, the earth being broken or anything. Is there... Is there another ending that we can read into, like maybe, I don't know, maybe the crow made Top Dollar go insane and he killed everybody? I would never have thought of that, but I guess <laughs> I would like to think no. I'd like to think that everything happened in the movie was supernatural, so why not smooth over a grave? Um, I'll, I, I'm going to stick to that. <laughs> I'll just say when the music swells and Shelly touches his head and he looks up, I might have been I weepy ball. a little bit. I might I have ball. been a little weepy. There might have been misty in there. I, I might have had some sniffles. So I'm, I'm man enough to admit that. On my first watch, I rolled my eyes and went, oh, give me a break. This movie was so soft. And then on the second watch, when I was looking at Eric and the crow completely differently, I might have cried too. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i've watched it a, a thousand times and i did my rewatch for the for the review and completely burst into sobs at the end as i did when james obar was sitting you know three rows behind oh, me god. the first time i saw it so yeah 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 that's awesome so uh yeah i mean the ending was great i, I mean it was a little mushy but i'm a sucker for a rom-com and uh <laughs> And I, I liked it a lot. I liked it a lot. So here's where we give our rewatch scores. And you know what, you guys? Since I like to doctor the scores for movies that I love, I am going to go first. And I will let our guest give his rewatch score last, okay? So the first time I watched this, I was going to give this one and a half rewatches. It was something I never wanted to see again. After I watched it a second time, I'm going to give it three and a half rewatches. And I'm going to do that. Not that I would watch it three and a half more times because I probably won't. I probably won't watch this movie again. But I can respect it for what it is. Um, I thought Brandon Lee was great. I thought he had a lot of heart. I thought the movie was very cool. And I wouldn't disrespect it by giving it any less than three and a half. And if the cinematography had been a little better, I might have been able to pump it up a little higher than that. But that's going to be my my rewatch scores. Three and a half rewatches. All right. Uh, I will go next then. I'm going to give it a 4.5. And I'm only taking off a 0.5 because... Some of the cinematography is a little sketchy, especially uh, it looks very much like a 90s music video in some places. And so to a certain degree, it hasn't aged particularly well. Um, but I will watch it many more times. I know I will. Um, but I'm going to say for, you know, going as my recommendation to other people, I'm going to give it a 4.5. And Tony, before you go, I want to say this. You know the sliding skill has no science and no rules, so you do what you have to do, and nobody will judge you. No, no, I, I will get, I will be fair. Um, five, no. Um, 
honestly, it's it's there are only two movies in my two to three movies in my lifetime that I could I would ever say five for, and we already talked about one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, because the movie because I was a fan of the story, the book, because I was a fan of the movie, because I was a fan of following it, all of that. Take all that out. If we're just talking about this movie, I gotta give it a four. Because Dylan, you nailed, you both nailed it. It's like it, it's a very low budget look. It's a very dark movie, but the so much the atmosphere as much as hiding the defects of it. Mm-hmm. I, I have to admit it. Brandon's last role, amazing. Everybody in it, the way I felt they should. Were some of them cartoony? Yes, because they were cartoonish villains. Yep. Ones that had to be serious were dead serious. Um, but on ability, it, it's not an action-packed movie. It's not an over-the-top drama that's going to grab your heartstrings until maybe like two or three scenes isn't oscar worthy it's it's a great movie for what it is which is a snapshot of the mid 90s era of viewpoints of cinematography and the the music of the time this music this movie was so fueled by the soundtrack i know we touched but i feel that you could literally listen to the soundtrack and follow the movie in your head because the the songs are so iconic to those scenes and to Mm -hmm. to, to the feel of the movie so I have to say it's just a four okay. because, I mean, my heart wants to give it more because I love the movie. I love everything about it, but I think that it does do wrong. So I'll say four. All right. So with my three and a half rewatches and Delin's four and a half rewatches and Tony's four rewatches on the desert sliding scale of rewatches, we are going to give this one. 3.9 rewatches. <laughs> what are you waiting for? Go see this movie. It's a great movie. Tony, thanks for joining us. And Delin, of thanks. course, it was awesome doing the podcast with you, like always. Thanks so thank much. You, thank you. And as always, I'd like to thank my co host, Delin, and this week's special co host, Tony. And most importantly, I'd like to thank you, the listeners, for supporting the podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast further, you can do that on the Anchor page. It helps us to turn out better content. We hope you join us again next week where Pat, the podcaster with an opinion, will be back to discuss true lies. One of my favorites. It's going to be a fun show, so we hope you stop by and take a listen. Until next week. Hey, did you ever see that movie?